Ananias. Ananias. The Lord whispers in a vision to an early follower of Jesus in Acts 9. Yes, Lord. Ananias answers. The Lord says to him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. I want you to ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying right now. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias. That's you. To come place his hands on him and restore his sight. Him? Like Saul of Tarsus. Saul the Pharisee of Tarsus. Look, God, like you have a lot of irons in the fire. You got a lot of plates spinning. You're doing your moving and shaking. Things are happening. I get it. Maybe a name fell in the wrong pile here. Like Saul of Tarsus. This guy is he's a he's a Pharisee, which you know they don't really like us. They're not excited about the followers of Jesus, but he's not like the other Pharisees. This guy's got a taste for violence. He's got a deep rage inside of him. He's got this, this ambitious zeal to choke out those who call on your name. Him? Like, do you know? I mean, I know you know what he's responsible for. You're God. My brother Johanan was there just a couple weeks ago. Like, Stephen? Stephen was the greatest guy you could ever meet. All Stephen ever wanted to do was to give bread to widows and to go about proclaiming peace and the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection of you. That's all he wanted to do. He was the sweetest guy. My brother tells me on that day, you could... You could smell the hatred in Jerusalem. What started as a tiny argument about who Jesus was, who you are, who you love, started escalating until a group from the synagogue of the freedmen, they started screaming and spitting. They started grabbing him by his cloak and they dragged him outside of the city. And there's people everywhere saying, like, we got to stop this. This isn't cool. The Romans aren't going to like this. And the one person who could have stopped that entire mob scene became the master conductor of it. Shaul of Tarsus? They were grabbing at everything they could find, anything heavy, as bones were crushing. The last thing, you know the last thing Stephen said? The last thing he said was this, Lord Do not hold this against them. That's the kind of guy he was. You know what Saul did? He stood there with a quiet confidence and a grin, approving of everything that happened in Jerusalem on that day. Oh, he, Saul of Tarsus, he wasn't done yet though. No, he he got a taste of the blood and he wanted more. You know, you know this, Lord? We're, we're a small movement. I mean, like one in every 10,000 people in this Roman Empire follow are followers of Jesus. We're vulnerable. And he's got letters now from the high priest in Jerusalem to go north up to Damascus and find the men and the women who follow you and to crush them, bring them back to Jerusalem and hopefully have another scene of spectacle violence like I just saw. Saul of Tarsus. And look, I'm, I'm, I'm excited that you had this, you, you interacted, you interrupted, you disrupted what was happening. I'm glad you, you blinded him, excited about that, and I'm glad that you stopped them. 
But you want, me to, you want us to bring them on the team into the Jesus movement? Okay, like, fine, we'll, we'll do that. But it's going to take, like, at least a decade to get him up to speed because he's been moving and running so fast and heavy and far in the wrong direction that just to stop him and get him up to speed, like, we'll let him park some cars. We'll let him pick up some trash. We'll let him maybe, like, fold the bulletins. But it's going to be a long time before Saul of Tarsus is going to be any good for anyone. And we don't have the manpower to get him up to speed, God. So, okay. I'll go to that house on Straight Street. I'll pray the prayer. We'll we'll invite him in. We'll We'll be cautiously optimistic. But it's going to be a while. You're God, so fine. Acts 9. 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the nations, to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. This one is my chosen instrument. Look, when we talk about the story of Paul and and exploring Paul as a rascal, renegade, rebel, radical, there are so many ways to tell the story. I mean, there's more literature in scholarship and in popular uh, literature about Saul, Paul of Tarsus than almost any other character in human history other than maybe Jesus of Nazareth. Like, there's so much written. There's so many angles, so many places to go. And as I thought about sharing the story of Saul, Paul of Tarsus, I decided I wanted to make this thing so simple and focus on something so specific I want to focus on his trajectories, like where he went, where he was, where he went. And I want to think about his momentum. I want to sort of enter into that moment, maybe, where Ananias is called upon to be the one that's going to be the ambassador saying, hey, remember Saul? Yeah, he's with us now. And he's kind of going to be important, I guess. And to understand and see and then hopefully think about our own momentum, our own trajectories. Um, and when we meet Acts in, um, when we meet uh, Paul in Acts seven, uh, which I alluded to in Ananias' little little monologue I gave there, um, we see Shaul of Tarsus for the first time, and he is a unique character among other Pharisees. He's not just there to make sure folks keep the law and keep purity rituals and keep temple purity going nicely and make sure that they uh, don't step out of line and defile themselves with Gentiles or with other things. He's not just interested in that, but he actually has an aggression against this Jesus movement. He's got it. He's sort of the PhD in Christian studies who wants to destroy them. He knows all about them, and he's the first one. If you were in, let's say, the Sanhedrin, which is just sort of a, a gathering of folks in Jerusalem that were kind of important. If you were in the Sanhedrin, and you're like, hey, what's this whole followers of the way thing? I ah, talked to Shaul. He seems to be really into that stuff. Go ask him. He was specially focused on this group. And um, we were told about uh, uh, Saul's life. Paul's life in many different places. Saul in his letters. I mean, this guy, he's a a figure that wrote uh, 13 of the 27 letters of the New Testament. He's one of the most 
important figures, at least in terms of attention and literature that we have in early Christianity. This guy, we, we get actual glimpses of his own life from like autobiographical evidence of his life that he gives in some letters. Uh, so if you want to sort of put your thumb in two places or your fingers in two places or somehow do that, put one in Acts, uh, Acts chapter 9 and one in Philippians chapter 3. One in Acts chapter 9 and one in Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to jump hopscotch back and forth a couple times. But in Philippians chapter 3, we actually get a picture of sort of Saul's perspective and what was going on in his own mind as he was so viciously and violently pursuing the followers of Jesus and how he saw himself prior to his encounter on that road that Matt read to us before he encountered Jesus, who said to him, and we'll get into this uh, in our Acts series this fall, which I am so fired up about. It's going to be awesome. But we'll get into this, what Jesus says to him, where Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which is interesting because Saul, we don't have any example of him knowing Jesus or interacting with Jesus. We have no evidence of it. Yet, as Saul attacks Stephen, as Saul attacks other followers of Jesus, Jesus takes it so personally that he says, why are you persecuting me? That's cool, uh, cool theology in that we'll unpack later in the year. But from that moment on, something radically changes. I just want you to see. So Philippians 3, we'll start in verse 4. He's talking to a church in Rome in Philippi, mostly Gentiles. Um, and he's kind of defending himself because there's some people running around saying, Saul, he's kind of, Saul, what, that guy, don't even listen to Paul. And he had both names, by the way. Uh, one perhaps more um, frequently used in Jewish context, Shaul, a good Jewish name, uh, and one used when he's typically in more Gentile context, Paulos, which, which um, so I think both of those names are used probably ongoing, but they were saying, hey, this Paul guy, he's, he's like the last pick at dodgeball. He's a nobody. He's just, don't take him seriously. And Paul goes, oh, you want to play that game? I don't play that game, but I'll play that game for one second. Let me just pull out my resume, my old resume, and let's just measure up. If we want to see who's the big dog in town, let me just show you what I used to be into. So he goes, if some think, this is verse 4, second part, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, that means put confidence in anything outside of God, fine, I have more. I am, I am topping them. Okay? I was circumcised on the eighth day, thanks Paul for that detail, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So all those, that full list essentially says this about him to the group that would be hearing it. I am from the right bloodline. In a world that cared very much about who your parents were, your, your, what, ran in your, what blood ran in your veins, Paul could say, mine is immaculate. My daughter's sixth generation Southern Californian, sixth generation Michelli. And she actually has a birthmark of California on her arm. I'm not kidding. We call it her tattoo. So you just start getting branded by the time you're sixth generation. So he's saying essentially, like, I am way, way, way. Hebrew. Okay, so I got the bloodline thing going. How about this? In regard to the law, the Mosaic law, I was a Pharisee. Everyone knew Pharisees. They were like the sort of the, the Harvard or Yale PhDs in academics today, right? You get a PhD from Harvard or Yale or Berkeley or something. You're kind of in top tier. He's like, I was a Pharisee. That's like top tier studying Mosaic law. So I know exactly what I'm doing there. Uh, as for zeal, who's zealous among you? How many of you are zealous for the house of Israel? I was so zealous, I was persecuting and killing. I was willing to shed blood to make sure the boundaries of the house of Israel remained fervent and solid. So he's re rehearsing his old life, that zeal, that momentum. 
persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. So what do we see in a guy like Saul? Here's what we see. We see a dude who's got a motor on him. He is driven. He's not going to do anything halfway. He's going to get the A++. He's that student that's emailing you like, why do I only have a 98.5? I want a 100%, right? He is all in, all the way. And he's doing it with almost this like, sort of blind passion of like, I am focused. I am shutting down this movement, the Jesus movement. I will research them. I will know their networks. I will even know, by the way, that you have to go after not just the men, but the men and the women, which is unique in his approach to persecution. He's, and he's going to shut them down. And he's also fully convinced. He's not like morbidly walking around going, oh man, I'm so jacked up. Why do I always want to persecute people? No, he actually thought this is what God would have me do. I think a lot of Romans 7, if you ever go to Romans 7, and he says, I do not do what I want, and I, what I want I do not do. Woe is me. I think part of that is Paul reflecting even on his old life as he's sitting there going, I thought I was doing the right thing, and boy, I was doing the wrong thing. But here he is, fully convinced, fully charged up, moving at 1,000 miles an hour, all this momentum in one direction. And then something amazing happens. Acts 9. He encounters Christ. He discovers something so big and beautiful. Saul's story is unique. Some of our stories, when we find Jesus, it's at the bottom of our barrel, right? We were just like rock bottom, and God kind of brings us to the end of ourselves, and we're like, okay, Lord, I need you. Saul's is a little unique. He thought what he had was so good and delicious and wonderful and the thing, and suddenly he discovered something so much grander and more beautiful and more amazing, something that once he beheld it, He's like, I can't turn back. He actually describes the, his encounter or his sort of his um, the second half of his life in Philippians 3, verse 7, if we continue on. This is, he's just reflecting now, having met Jesus. He goes, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So like all that stuff I thought was so awesome that most people would read my resume and go, whoa, this guy's impressive. All that stuff? I took it to Salvation Army, and I'm like, here you go. Goodbye. I'm out of here. I got something so much better. I considered it a loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of all the cool material items God gives me. No. I consider it a a loss because of the surpassing worth of just knowing Christ. Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake, by the way, I've lost everything. My favorite Greek word coming up. I consider them all scubala. Everyone say scubala. Scubala. Because if some of you are trying to break some habits, you know, some language habits, that's a good word to use. Scubala. Essentially, it's translated as rubbish or trash or garbage. It's a little more. uh, It's a little more than that. Let's just say scubala would be the stuff that in a city without good plumbing, uh, it ran in the streets. Right? That's exactly what Scubalo was. And he doesn't just say, yeah, I had a good thing going, and I was doing pretty well, but I found something that kind of took my life to that next level, and I went for it. No, he goes, I had this thing going, and this thing, you know what it was? It was, it was kind of a warm pile of Scubalo. And that's what it is to me now. Why? Because I discovered something so much bigger, so much better, and I am now ruined for other things. We had uh, dinner with uh, some friends of ours from Michelli's. Uh, school. They were actually at the beach service this morning, 
and they're vegans, right? And, and like vegans, I hear vegan, and I'm like, oh, I don't want to go to dinner there. Don't want to go to dinner there. Like loading up on protein before I get there and meat and there's beef jerky in my pocket just in case things go bad. And she's like, you know, we're, making, we're barbecuing. And I go to myself like, what are we barbecuing, right? And I want to know something died before I eat it if it's going to be barbecued. No, and, and so like she got these vegan patties from Whole Foods, and she made them like this pretzel bun and this seasoning, and I took one bite of them. And I'm like, I'm ruined. I can never eat a hamburger again because these are so insanely delicious, right? So I'm just totally ruined. This is kind of like, the, like Saul's deal. It wasn't like, oh, man, I'm just so, such a bad boy. Okay, I'll go to Jesus. Instead, it was like, I'm killing it. I'm killing. I'm doing it right. I'm leading the future of the house of Israel. And suddenly it goes, oh, my word, who is this Jesus? I knew who he is as a historical figure. I studied him. But who is this Jesus in my life and in God's future? This is amazing. And he was like sold, sold out. So I guess in, the, in my reflection of these trajectories, the old and the new, here's what I just want us to reflect on. Or, or here's what I'd like to say. Permission to just be amazed at God. Permission from me to you to just let yourself have a moment this week or have a week of it or have a month of it or a lifetime of just being like, Lord, you are so amazing. You are so amazing. Like paddle out to the buoy and lay on your back and sit out and just just praise the Lord. Like get in a cool place in PV somewhere with a view and go in a quiet garden somewhere. And just like, just be blown away. Uh, how about this? Have Madeline come to your house and say, hey, we're going to ask about what God's doing in your life. Because I want to do that now for us every single day. That was amazing. What is God doing in your life? And just be amazed. Permission to be amazed. Because there's something inside of me and there's something inside of every single one of you. Human, I don't care if you're first time here and like, you're like, I don't know about this Jesus stuff. And I'm kind of nervous. Or you've been a follower all your life. I don't care where you are, something inside of every one of us is crying out to just be amazed at God, to just be unbridled amazed and taken up the sublime beauty of our God. So permission granted, right? And because that's what draws Paul into a new direction. It wasn't necessarily like God's shaming stick, like bad boy, naughty boy, not look what you did, put your head in it. Instead it was like, this is who I am! And then Paul's like, this is who you are, then this is scubala, right? And he knows, and he moves. And so the more we're getting consumed by God, I think the more we're moving in that direction. So that's kind of the piece of reflection here. It's like permission to be preoccupied with God. Permission to be consumed by it. Permission to be a little wacky about how incredible you think God is and see where that takes you. Because I think it's going to take you to some cool places. It took Paul into some amazing places. Here's a big observation. And like I said, this is a simple message. It's too easy to complicate Paul's life because he is a complex figure. Probably one of the most brilliant minds, I would argue, in early Christian history. N.T. Wright actually claims Paul of Tarsus, from St. Andrews, by the way, he claims of Paul of Tarsus may just be one of the greatest minds of Western history. And this is like a big dog scholar reflecting on this. So um, we could get into that. We can get lost in that. And I encourage you, get lost in it. There's some beautiful things to see. But I'm keeping this simple. I want to make a big observation about Saul, Paul's momentum. About his momentum. Because what we saw is like a lot of weight and power and energy driving in one direction. 
And I'm sorry that Paul's bad direction is always this side. I've realized that I've decided, like, it's over here. Nothing against this side of the room, right? I just decided in my message this is where his bad side is, and here's where his good side is, okay? So I just wanted to clear that up. We were in the 4th of July run. So Ashton down there. was Ashton right there. And we said, anyone else here do the 4th of July run down at the village? Okay. Well, okay, there. I saw you probably. Zooming bias. But we do the 4th of July run every year. We get dressed. My wife, she's so sweet. Like, I'm a costume guy. I'm like, let's dress up for Halloween. Let's dress up for this. It's my birthday. Let's dress up. And, like, so we're in, like, head to toe. You know, we're basically, like, American flags cruising around. And we're running with a double stroller. We haven't done this in a while because the kids are a little too big for it now. And it's really heavy, but Michelle ran the last part of the race, but she couldn't do the whole thing. So we're in this thing. It's heavy, and it's moving. Here's the deal about that race. There's a bajillion people. You don't know that many people exist on Earth until 4th of July in the village, and they're all there. And so we're running, and people do this thing where they run, 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 and they just stop. And you're like, can you, like, let me know? Maybe say something. Like, I'm stopping. And they just stop. They're like, something, I need to know you're stopping. Because when I got this double, and I got my, like, Neil Diamond is just cranking in my Bose stereo, and we're running, and you stop. I can't stop this thing that fast. So the first mile is like trying to pull the thing to a halt, like just busting up my forearms because this thing is so heavy and it's moving in a direction. I think, like, we think about a guy like Paul of Tarsus, and we're thinking about a guy who's moving fast and hard and heavy in one direction. And the thought is, and, I, and here, I'm going to bring you into this now, and I want you to reflect as we reflect on Saul. Many of you might have this thought, too, about yourselves, about others, or maybe about your past, about your pains, about your habits, about whatever. Here's the thought. My hurt in life, my sin, my jacked-up history, it's so bad, and it's so nasty, and I've been dented. I'm not mixing metaphors. I'm moving so badly in this direction that, like, It's going to be a long time before God could even do something in my life. Because he's going to have to slow me down, bring me to a stop, wheel me around. I'm like, all right, everybody, push. Here we go. Here we go. And maybe one day I'll be able to actually do something of meaning and purpose and significance for the kingdom of God. But, man, I'm just, I am not the guy or gal. Saul of Tarsus is exactly, I did my little monologue Ananias monologue today. I'm here for one night only, by the way. So after that, no more. But Ananias kind of reflecting. I had him reflect on like him. Like, dude, if we bring him on board, that's going to be a lot of resources. We're going to have to get him up to speed. He's, he's, it's going to be cumbersome, God. So the idea being, do we have to stop, come to a stop, turn around, and get going again? Is that how it works? Check out Acts chapter 9. Do we see a Saul that now has to kind of fight his old momentum? Let's watch this. Acts 9, verses 19 to 22. This is right after Ananias prays for him. He receives his sight again, brings him into the fold. They're in Damascus. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Verse 20. Eutheos. Literally, in the Greek term, immediately. It means immediately. Immediately. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the the one raising havoc in Jerusalem among all those who call on this name of Jesus? Like this guy? And and hasn't he come here to take prisoners to the chief priests? That's why we let him in the synagogue. We thought we were going to help him out. And now he's preaching Jesus? 
verse 22, yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled uh, the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. What happens with Saul? Here's what happens. It wasn't a get your momentum, catch it, stop it, turn it around, and let's get the engine going the other way. Instead, what God does is so beautiful. He takes Saul's destructive, mistaken, misguided momentum, he takes it, and he slingshots it. He just slingshots it around. Like, I don't know anything about space, but I know one thing from the movies I've seen, right? If you're in a spaceship, and you want to get extra sort of speed, and you don't have the fuel for it, you try to slingshot around the moon, or slingshot around a planet, or a black hole, or just slingshot around something, right? Because what does it do? I'm not a physicist, but it seems like it takes your momentum, and instead of stopping you and turning you around, and let's go this way, it says, yeah, you think you're going that way, you think going that way, guess what? Jesus, boom! Suddenly you're moving in the other direction with all the passion, zeal, power, and giftings, but now they're directed exactly where God wants them to be. Here's a personal example, even when it comes from hurt. Let's think about hurt for a minute. There's all kinds of ways this could go. But in my own life personally, uh, you know, in the hardest part of my life, the darkest hour where I felt like, like things were happening in my life and family, and I felt like I was just losing everything. I was just destroyed. I literally, I'm not kidding you. This is not like some preaching exaggeration thing. I actually believed I'd been a pastor for about eight, uh, about 10 years before that, and I'd been a pastor's kid, and I was always a good church kid. I literally thought this, I'm done. Like, I'll, I could be a pastor maybe, but I can't even, like, fix my own problems in my life and I've been hurt too badly. I am like that car. Now here comes my dent metaphor. I've been dented. I've been been totaled. That's how I thought about my life. I've been totaled. And even if we could bring me to the shop, buffer some things out, rebuild a few things, still I'm I'm never going to be in that car show of ministry that's doing on the front lines of God's work. I'll be the the shop when everything else breaks down. Ah, maybe bring him in. He can hand out a bulletin or something. I literally thought like I'm done. My ministry's like, it's, it's stopped. I remember in tears, I'm driving up to, I don't know, where do I go? I'm driving up to Todd's house. By the way, don't all drive up to Todd's house every time something goes bad. There's a lot of good people here. But I, just, I drove to Todd. I've known him a long time. I drove to Todd's house and I and sat with Todd and Denise. And I just cried and they cried. And I, just, I was just broken. You know, like, let's not cry, let's not cry. Blah. It's all over. And Todd's great because his ministry isn't a ministry in Denise, too. It's not a ministry of advice. Like, well, let me give you the three Ps to overcoming this problem. Instead, it's a ministry of presence. It's a ministry of being there with you and caring. And I think it's a ministry that's infectious in this church. What I love about this church is a lot of presence, a lot of people there with you. But he did give me one piece of advice, one word of encouragement, one, I don't know, prophetic moment. And he says, James, this is, this is painful, this is hard, this is dark, this is gnarly. I don't know if he said gnarly, but I say that a lot. But he said, one day... One day the pain's not going to be there. It's going to, you know, God's going to, sun's going to rise in your life. There's going to be something, right? But, but I, I want you to know this. You will never minister the same again. You will never be a pastor the same again. And it wasn't in a sense of like, well, you had your shot, but you blew it because you couldn't control everything in your life and bad things happened. No, it was like him telling me, you're going to minister out of this in ways you have no idea about. And that was it. He just left it there. But that just stuck with me. And let me tell you something. In seven, seven years now and, and counting, I would say probably about 
85% of the ministry I do to people when I'm interacting with them comes out of that place of going like, Lord, where I don't, well, here I am. And God showing me a side of him I had never seen or known before. God taking old momentum and ideas and little pristine dreams and, and sort of stained glass windows of what I think it means to, to, to just be a follower of him and love him and who he is. And he took some of those and goes, hey, check that out. Boom, that's not me. Boom, that's not me. Yeah, yeah, Daniel's going to tell you something about that. And he, and he took that momentum from that. And you know what happened? Had I, had I just balled up and not gotten the help I needed, not gotten the encouragement, not gotten the care, and family around us, all the things that, I would have literally been like a, okay, fine, momentum's going to keep going, and I will crumble and fall and live in this, like, second tier, third tier, fourth tier thing. But instead what God did is he took the momentum and he just shoved it in a different direction. And I saw a new who he was. And my ministry is just totally different. That's just, that's me. And I'm not just saying that. Before this, the worst thing that happened to me was maybe my wisdom teeth coming out or something, right? And this is exactly the point of the whole series we're looking at. And I just want to, I want you to hear it and capture it and understand it. Like, where is the momentum in your life? Where are the moments, the pains, the hurts, things you have done, things that have been done to you? Lies that are stuck in your head so deeply, it's like they just have a nest in there and they're just kind of having lie babies. And you're like, this is, I'm just, you're driving so hard. Or if, or, or if you sit there and some of you, and this is a crazy thought, and I'm not, some of you have a thing, it's a secret or it's a thing, you're like, I, if this gets out, it's over. I am done. So I got to get the cement truck in here and bury it a little deeper and a little deeper and get the Febreze out and try to make it smell a little bit better and a little bit better. Because if this gets out, it's over. And let me tell you something. It might just be that hidden inside that tomb you've made for that part of your life that's so secret. That might just be where your greatest ministry is going to come out of right there. Because that's exactly what God does. He doesn't waste pain. He doesn't waste sin. He doesn't waste any of that. He takes it, give it to him, behold him, and he launches it in the other direction. And you sit back, and it's an adventure. And you behold it. And you go, what in the heck are you doing, God? And it's amazing. And that's what we see in Saul, Paul of Tarsus. That's what we see in almost every character we encounter in this beautiful sacred anthology of inspired texts. It's called the Bible. And that's what I've seen in my life. And that's what I've seen in so many of your lives. And then I see a world of potential. And it's always in the most random, beautiful places that you don't think be coming from. So, all that to say, well, why is that momentum work? It's what we're transitioning to right here as we reflect on the Lord's table, as we reflect on the body and blood of Christ. Without God so loving the world, so loving, in this way loving the world, that he would give his only, one and only son to take that darkness, that momentum, the pain, the confusion, the lies that are so powerful, so relentless throughout human history, throughout our history, without God taking on flesh and taking that upon himself, taking sin on himself and being crushed and buried. And then with that resurrection, when he sprung from that tomb, with it came all that momentum flying in the other direction, which makes it Not just possible, but highly likely that your hardest spot is going to be where your greatest ministry is going to come from or is right now flowing out of. So as we reflect on the the bread and the cup, 
um, I'll invite up um, our team and, and I'll uh, invite us to remember that that bread represents the body of Christ and that blood represents the blood of Christ given for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And I'll add a little piece for the, for the slingshotting of that momentum. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much that you take all the pieces of our lives, whatever they are, however big or trivial they may seem to outsiders uh, or even to our own perspective, you take those things and when we hand them over to you and we behold you, you slingshot them and you send us hurling in a beautiful direction. And all of Saul, Saul's drive and stubbornness and clarity of vision that was mistaken, Lord, is suddenly redirected and going in in a beautiful direction. It's just so good. It's so good to be reminded of that. So I thank you for this crew of families and faces and hearts and lives. And I pray, Lord God, for those, those especially that see themselves on the bench or see themselves as third or fourth tier members of the kingdom of God that are sitting there too dented, too scarred, too messy. And that you might just be saying, hey, you're up to bat. You're driving this one home. Thank you, God, that you do that all the time. And it's not us, but it's you. We love you and we do this in the name of Jesus, the name that makes it all possible. Amen.